Hi, this is Ikim. Hi, this is Katrina. Welcome to High Impact Coffee Hour, where you can listen to two psychology nerds chat with academics about philosophy, feminism, and science. All right, hello everyone. Back on another episode of High Impact Coffee Hours. Hi. I'm Lucina Udine, and I'm really excited to be here with you both today. I'm currently an associate professor of psychology at the University of Miami, and there I direct the Brain Connectivity and Cognition Laboratory, as well as the Cognitive and Behavioral Neuroscience Division within the department. Awesome. Thank you for uh, being on here and for introducing yourself. Um, and before we get started with some of the questions, I we just wanted to ask you how you've been doing during this year of COVID and everything. How's everything? <laughs> how's the adjustment been? Yeah, I appreciate your asking that. I was one of the lucky ones, or perhaps not lucky, to be on sabbatical this past year. So I wasn't doing any online teaching. Um, I was still, of course, doing hundreds of Zoom meetings uh, like everyone else. But in a way, there was a little bit less pressure because I wasn't um, expected to put together a course. And, and uh, I know that was a struggle for a lot of people who were doing that for the first time. So in some ways, it was a, um, a little bit of a, a break for me. But my original plan for sabbatical was to, of course, go around the world and do exciting things like everyone um, plans to do. But uh, what I did was different. And in fact, I think I enjoyed it a lot more, which is I came to San Diego. Um, so I'm a, currently a visiting scholar at UCSD. But of course, nobody was on campus there either. So I was basically working from home in San Diego the whole time. But I got to spend a lot of that time with my one-year-old niece, uh, who basically is very, um, you know, fun to to hang around with for a year. So I got to spend a lot more time with my family than I would have otherwise. Oh, that's so incredible. And that's something that we've been hearing a lot from other people who uh, maybe wanted to travel the world or do other things that are exciting during this year, but uh, kind of had to stop short, but were able to spend more time with their family members and just see people grow up if they had little children and stuff like that. So yeah, it's nice to hear. Year. Yes. Yeah, I think it's interesting because we've all been forced to reprioritize things. So the fact that it had to slow down um, was perhaps in some ways a positive because it we don't often get this much of a slowdown in our <laughs> schedules. So I'd like to look on the bright side of all this is that it did give us that opportunity for those of us who are lucky enough to have those kinds of jobs. Definitely. And I think that it's helped people reprioritize their uh, sense of like, um, boundaries with their work and just making sure that they take time for themselves because they see that that rest can really be uh, a way to be more productive in itself so that's right yeah, yeah I think it's been the opposite for me actually I think just <laughs> being able to work from home every single day has really pulled my focus away from like having to like interact I don't want to use the word having to but you know what I mean you know yes. I'm just like working from home and this is my setup now pretty happy don't really want to go back to work yeah, I definitely don't want to go back to the old way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really hope that more places, especially like workplaces, recognize that it's important to have like that hybrid system where you don't have to constantly go back into work for those eight hour stretches or even longer. And that mm -hmm. same amounts of work can be done at home um, at, during, for your, during your own schedule. So let's hope yeah. that people recognize that uh, hybrid system is, is still uh, useful. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so maybe I'll just get started on the career section of this podcast. So we're just going to ask a, a series of questions about your career and you can um, answer uh, the ones that you want to. Yeah. Sounds good. 
So um, I'll start by asking you, what was your first entry point to research in academia? Entry point to research. I think I fell into it in a sort of default kind of way. Um, so I wasn't one of those people who knows exactly what they want to do from when they're very young. Um, but I do remember, you know, at some point, maybe I was 10 years old and I heard somewhere the myth that we only use 10% of our brain. And I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? What if we could unlock the power of the other 90%? It's one of those things that even though it, we know it to be clearly, um, you know, an exaggeration, we, it still gets you thinking and it makes you um, get interested in a field. And I think I must have been pretty young when I first heard that. And then in the back of my mind, I thought maybe I'll think about studying the brain. And so when I picked my undergraduate major, um, it was one of those things where I didn't have anything else I was particularly interested in. So I looked at the list of majors at UCLA, um, which they actually have over a hundred, maybe 130 majors. And I just went down the list and said, no, 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 no. And then I saw neuroscience and I thought, well, that sounds like what I want to do. Maybe I'll study that. And, you know, of course, four years goes by as an undergrad and you realize that basically neuroscience is just a pre-med major. So everyone I was surrounded by was prepping for med school and taking MCATs and planning to do that. And I realized I don't want to do that. <laughs> I really just kind of had a realization that I didn't want to be a medical doctor. Um, I don't know what about it particularly, but I just didn't see myself doing that um, where everyone else in my major was planning to do that and very excited about it. I couldn't see a future career for myself in that area. So then I was just kind of left with, well, now I just have this neuroscience undergrad degree and uh, I'm prepared for something, but I don't know what. Um, and you oftentimes just get either lucky or unlucky uh, with not knowing what you want to do, but kind of it all sort of falling into place anyway. So I thought, well, maybe I should just stay in school <laughs> and study neuroscience some more. Um, and I think this is where it comes in, where it really matters what background you have and what other network and family and, and you know expectations you have. So of course, like coming from an immigrant family, they expected that I would be a doctor. So it was a big like, what, you're not gonna be a doctor? <laughs> um, but as long as I stayed in school, nobody would bother me. So um, I told them, well, I'll, I'll do a PhD and I'll you know just keep going. And uh, they understood that because my, my dad actually has a PhD in comparative literature, which is a whole different story. But um, because they realized, oh, she's gonna stay in school, they sort of left me alone to, to keep doing that and didn't um, harass me further. But uh, so I just, you know, I wouldn't say ended up, but I kind of kept on studying neuroscience. Um, and the entry point, I guess, then was while I was an undergrad. So for those folks who do end up in pre-med majors or on an undergrad major that emphasizes um, going to medical school, they tell you, do research, do research, do research. You don't know why, but it's basically something that they drum into you that, oh, you should get some research experience uh, one way or another. So you try to get yourself in a lab and you know start doing something. I didn't know what research was as an undergrad, but I knew that I was supposed to be doing it. So I basically, you know, emailed a bunch of professors in different labs to find out, you know, where I could get some research experience, which is what I'm supposed to be doing. So um, eventually, you know, ended up getting some experience in a few different labs. But uh, I think things have changed so much from the time that I went to grad school to now. Um, when I started the PhD program at UCLA, it was 2001. I think it was a different era. It was 
I would say easier to get into grad school then <laughs> because you could uh, manage with less experience. Now, some of the applications I see people have publications already or they have a lot of understanding of exactly what kind of research they wanna do. So I think um, the times have changed really quickly. And so I like to um, remember that myself, like I wouldn't have gotten into grad school today. And a lot of people say that who are professors now, they wouldn't have gotten in. It's true, we wouldn't have gotten in based on the criteria that, that now have um, emerged. So uh, that's the long story short, I guess, or the, or the long story long. That's definitely yeah. what I've been seeing so much on Twitter now is that people have been talking about their own experiences with going to grad school and saying that at this rate, they would, wouldn't have been able to make it into their grad schools if uh, they applied this year, especially mm -hmm. this year with the increase in a lot of psychology mm -hmm. um, graduate applications with uh, the GRE being waived and also just mm -hmm. uh, people seeing it as like a good entry point. Um, but it being just so hyper competitive, it's uh, been very difficult for people. Yeah, it's, it's crazy if you talk to the generation before because they'll tell you, oh, I just finished my PhD and got a faculty job. We all did. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's even more frustrating for someone. Like for me, it took me seven years of being on the job market before I landed my current job. So things, yeah, things have changed rapidly. Why do you think things have uh, become so competitive these days? Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's that, um, well, for, uh, you know, for most people, they already kind of are aware of the fact that a college degree helps you get a better earning and you know, you'll have better earning potential your whole life with a college degree. But then people are realizing that with a graduate degree, um, you can perhaps do even more, you know, interesting things and make more money. Um, but I think uh, this We've, we've kind of get, gotten to the point where it's not just about money and just about financial security, but being able to do something you're interested in or passionate about or care deeply about um, seems to be a very important motivator for a lot of people. And of course, there's many ways to um, do an interesting job, but I think a lot of people see graduate school as one way where you can really pick this idiosyncratic topic that only you and five other people care about and um, you know, <laughs> you know, nerd out about it. And, and, and so I think a lot of people find that as a, an attractive way to you know, spend their uh, adult career, um, whether or not, yeah. But I mean, all of these things are, are competitive, right? Going to med school is competitive, um, you know, getting into um, you know, top business law and other programs, they're, they're all, all these professional degrees are pretty hard to get. I think that the reason grad school can be particularly attractive is because in the sciences you do get paid, you know, a graduate stipend. You don't, you don't typically have to hopefully get into too much debt getting the PhD. Whereas, you know, my sister, for example, is a cardiologist and is still paying off med schools and will for the rest of her life um, be paying off med school. So I think that for different people, it's different trade-offs and pros and cons. But um, things are becoming competitive because everyone is kind of realizing. Uh, life is is getting harder too, <laughs> in terms of economically, um, but also in terms of doing the thing that that you want to do. Um, often takes many years to get to that point. And so another question that uh, we were curious about is: um, Did so? Did you face any challenges uh, during your career that you believed were unique to yourself? Um, unique to myself. Yeah, I think we all like to think that we're really special and unique, but mo most of the things that have happened to us have probably happened to someone else before. Uh, um, I think that for me, you know, the kind of falling into doing neuroscience, I thought it was interesting. 
Um, I, I didn't actually get into any of the graduate programs because as you can imagine, I wasn't very competitive. I had a little bit of research experience and I had a good GPA, but I didn't um, know a lot about what, I, what it meant to be a researcher. Right. So, and I did this thing of just applying immediately. And um, so I, I actually didn't get into grad school. So, you know, I was, I was finishing up my undergrad and thinking of going to grad school, applied to seven or eight places, got into zero of them. Um, so, uh, and this is common now. I mean, people get rejected, but I think it's important to remember that many of us have had this experience of trying and failing. Um, but the, the good news is that during that process, I, mean, I was still an undergrad at UCLA, but I applied to the PhD program there in neuroscience. And so I did actually interview there and I met someone who then went on to become my graduate advisor. So I had applied through neuroscience and he told me if you the kind of stuff you wanna do, you should actually apply through psychology. That's where you do human cognition. Um, and I thought, oh, that would have been useful for someone to tell me, you know, <laughs> last year. But, you know, it's, it's kind of like a trial and error thing. Like, if you don't know where you're going, you're going to bump around a bit. So um, he um, kind of snuck me into the psych program at UCLA, which oh, I don't know. I don't know if people can even do that anymore. But I, <laughs> I, I basically failed to get into the PhD program in neuroscience, but I did get into the PhD program in psychology because this one person took a leap of faith and took a chance on me. Um, and so Aran Zaidel became my PhD advisor through psychology. And so I did manage to get in, just not the traditional way. <laughs> That's incredible. And it just kind of goes to show that uh, the power of networking and the power of like people taking you under their wing and, and seeing the potential in you can really go a long way um, and can really yeah. fast track the, the career. Yeah. <laughs> and some people are just incredible mentors where they have faith yeah. in you, even when you, there's no reason to. So, you know, he, he took a chance on me for no reason, just based on one conversation. And, uh, um, and you only have to convince one person to let you into a program. You don't, or, you know, a set of advisors or something, you know, it's, it's hard to get into these programs these days, as we talked about, it's competitive, but you really just have to kind of click with one um, advisor when it comes to psychology programs. Neuroscience programs do more of a rotation where they just take a bunch of good people and they go through different labs and then they decide which lab they'll work in. But psychology programs tend to, you know, match you with a mentor and then you work with that person. So I think I um, ha just happened to have a good fit in that individual and he's, you know, been a good mentor all these years and, you know, still keep in touch. Um, but that's what people talk about all the time about just finding that one or two or three people who are going to be your champions. And, um, you know, that certainly makes life easier when you have those people in your corner. That's incredible to hear. And that's so nice to think that there are like really positive mentorship experiences and then people uh, continue to keep in touch with their mentors. And that that's such an integral parts of this process because you do need a team of people to help succeed, to help you with your success. Um, Cause it's a difficult path to take alone. So that's right. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm sort of wondering if you've ever faced any challenges, maybe in your PhD or as a postdoc, where um, maybe you were reconsidering a career in research or academia, and what made you decide to stay? Uh, yeah, I think every every so often, at least once a week, I was reconsidering because uh, it was the same thing where I finished my PhD and didn't really know what to do next, but I realized, oh, people do postdocs after they finish their PhD, you know, so I, you know, applied for postdocs and all that. But as the, you know, years went by, I realized um, the chances of getting faculty jobs are, are very, you know, competitive, like everything else, I should look around and see what else, you know, I should 
be qualified to do. And I didn't do a very good job of building up other skills. So I wasn't very qualified to do much else. Um, but I think, yeah, one thing it's important to do is like take stock of the skills you have and the things you like to do and figure out what those would be, um, you know, what, what could be uh, used towards. So the thing, like if, if I hadn't ended up staying in academia, I would have gone into like science communication or journalism or um, editing uh, a journal. Because, you know, some of the journals in the field have full-time editors. So I think I would have enjoyed that kind of um, aspect of it. I'm not a good programmer, so I could not work in data science. I couldn't do any of those um, hot jobs that are everyone's talking about right now. But if you are good at programming, it's good to like keep an eye on that as um, a way to develop your skills to to take on jobs in user experience or data science or things like that. Because um, it turns out a lot of companies want to hire PhDs. Um, so once you decide that's what you're going to do, you might you'd have uh, a good shot at it. <laughs> yeah, it's good to know that there are other options for people if they decide not to stay in academia that they can go and be in an industry type job or even be in an editing position because yeah you're after doing a PhD for so long in a postdoc you're used to reading and writing and re-editing and redrafting several right. uh, forms of your paper so that's I didn't even think about that as that being a really important skill to have so yeah just continue to write these things down to like market yourself because you are learning a lot of things even though you don't think that they're really important skills. Yeah, the, the cohort of people I graduated with ended up in really cool positions. You know, one ended up working at NASA. Um, one is like the science curator at a museum in San Francisco. One worked in science policy in Washington, DC. Um, and so I keep in touch with all these friends from grad school because I often have them come and do workshops for current students in my program. Cause I realized like they've all had really cool careers. You know, one of them went on to be the editor of a big journal. Like they, they've had really good careers and people often don't hear about those um, like really exciting things you can do with your PhD. Uh, and uh, so I, I kind of like, uh, you know, in fact, they sound, their jobs sound more exciting often day to day than <laughs> <laughs> what I end up doing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I never even heard about these different kinds of careers. And it really just makes you think of all the different possibilities that you can apply towards and yeah. don't think that you're limited yeah. to a certain Yeah, I mean, path. you could be, you know, you could be consulting on science policy and in politics if, if, if you, you know, do internships at the right time and, and get into that. Um, so yeah, that I was really um, inspired, I think, by my cohort. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I'm so glad to hear that because I was, uh, uh, in my head, I've made it out to be either like flunk out of academia, <laughs> like a boring desk job, nine to five, or I just have to like be in this competitive, you know, field. So it's, it's great to know it's not just two options. There's so many options. <laughs> I was going to ask, do you think that you would have done anything differently during your path towards your PhD or uh, during your postdoc? Um, yeah, that's one of those things like, do I regret? <laughs> Everyone has all a long list of regrets. Right. But I think the, the only thing I would have done differently now is, is like, cared less about um, things like reputation and prestige. And, um, you know, I might have made some decisions of where to work or what to do just based on what I thought was like the prestige of the university or the, you know, um, hyper competitive it would make me look really good to be at X place. So let me try to get a job there instead of like, you know, really thinking carefully about what would be the best fit for my research interests. So I think I was a little bit too starry eyed or too convinced by things like flashy publications and flashy uh, universities 
But then, you know, after a while you realize visiting many places that there's outstanding science and outstanding scientists all over the country and all over the world. And that there's not just one way of doing good science. Um, and then also that uh, the more you meet people from all over the world, you realize like uh, how much you have to learn from, you know, different environments and different research cultures and uh, different approaches. So I think I, I would, if anything, like regret being less open-minded in my youth, but I think everyone is a little <laughs> bit like that when they're, yeah, when they're still growing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was wondering if there was a stage in your career where you felt like you had a solid understanding of your field. <laughs> solid understanding. Yeah, I think, you know, nobody, if anyone tells you they have a solid understanding of their field, they're really probably not having <laughs> because because we we work in this area where there's a lot of unknowns um and that's you know what makes it interesting and what you know keeps us all going so most interesting science happens you don't necessarily stick to one area your entire career but you kind of look for connections and, and move around so i i've worked in you know a few different topics so i don't i don't even know what my field would be in fact over the years the name of the field has changed so when I started grad school, I was doing some stuff with face perception and self-consciousness and all of that. And as I went through like 2001 to 2006, that was my grad school years. During those years, like the field of social neuroscience emerged and then there were journals and conferences and what all. And suddenly it turned out I was doing social neuroscience, but I hadn't known that because the field hadn't emerged. And then after 2006, I started working in resting state fMRI and human connectomics and, um, and all of that. And I didn't know it, but I was doing network neuroscience and it, and it turns out, you know, that and so the, the fields, names of the fields often like take a while to catch up to describe what's being done. Um, so I, in, in any of those areas, I wouldn't feel like there's any solid knowledge yet because there's, they're new and emerging and exciting fields. Um, and so uh, I think the idea that we would ever have like a full understanding of all these fields is, is a, uh, not not something well i would never be the person to have it but i think it's it's important to realize how fields keep changing and evolving in fact like cognitive neuroscience came from sort of a combination of cognitive psychology and behavioral neuroscience and so it um cognitive neuroscience is a new field or at least it was an emerging field when i was starting out um and now maybe people think oh it's really established and it's a thing but um <laughs> it, it you know all of these things are, are changing over time yeah, definitely. It's an evolving field constantly and that there's there's always new programs, too, that people can start applying to that didn't exist in the past. And it just seems like it's constantly changing. But that's really right. cool that, to see that you're ahead of the field uh, a lot <laughs> of the times with your research. <laughs> and I think that that's like a good intersection into research now and some research questions. Um, and so one of the questions that we wanted to ask is, uh, do you see your field like setting the dust in terms of solidifying some mixed findings and like synthesizing a generalizable theory on this on a topic? Let's see, yeah. I mean, I think we're, we're always kind of like coming up with new ways. Um, and sometimes you have like things that are findings that are incremental, interesting pieces of knowledge. And sometimes you have paradigm shifts so I think for me, like a big paradigm shift was trying to understand that the brain has a lot of spontaneous activity and that activity isn't just random noise, but it's structured in some ways that are meaningful and 
can perhaps you know tell us a lot about um, individual differences and in pathology. So I think like once that for me that paradigm shift took place, it opened up a whole new field, which now you could call it human connectomics, or you could call it I don't know what you would want to call it network neuroscience. But um, you know a lot of that comes from these paradigm shifts or these uh, discoveries and these realizations that the background activity isn't just to be thrown away, it's to be uh, understood. And that maybe the brain is a prediction machine and maybe all of this spontaneous activity helps us do that. Um, so, so I think, yeah, um, in terms of like moving towards, I think we're always moving towards better understanding, but there could be a paradigm shift that none of us anticipated right now. And that could send us down a whole new path. Um, so what I think is really important in the meantime is to get our, our methods in line and our um, research practices um, to do you know, the most reproducible work. So mm -hmm. the nice thing that's happening is data sharing and a lot of large scale uh, initiatives to get big data sets, you know, hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of human neuroimaging data sets. That's helping us to get both you know, the reproducibility aspect and the individual differences aspect. Um, so that might be a paradigm shift itself, like the emphasis on data sharing, the emphasis on big data, and the emphasis on um, reproducible science and open science, of course. So um, I think all of these are really great developments. Yeah, speaking of uh, reproducibility, I was wondering if you think this is more of a theory problem or a methodology problem. I know it's probably a combination of both. <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely both. Um, like... Uh, you know, for example, there's this new push from the National Institute of Health to think about traits along a dimension rather than categorically. So instead of saying, well, we have a schizophrenia group and we have a control group, we're thinking about psychosis along the spectrum, for example. That's a theory that, you know, helps us try to parse nature. So once we adopt this approach, we get more reproducible findings. So that that's the on one hand. Um, so theory helps us, you know, in that way. But then the methods, I think, are also extremely important to understand in terms of limitations. Um, so if, if there are, and there always are, <laughs> limitations to a particular approach, um, what's the extent of uh, conclusions that we can reach from that method given these limitations and to always like be aware of those limitations. And um, the, what's really cool is that methods are constantly evolving and we have all these you know, electrical engineers and computer scientists um, and statisticians who like work around the clock to help improve our methods. And then when you collaborate with them, you can feel good that at least you're doing the most cutting edge thing that you could be doing. It could be obsolete tomorrow, but at least you're, <laughs> you know, you're keeping up with what's the, the um, you know, the trends in a particular field. That's why I think collaboration is so important because there's no way you could keep up on all these things alone. Um, you know, I can't know what's the latest in signal processing, but my electrical engineer colleague can fill me in. So I think, you know, I, I definitely prefer to do things in those kinds of groups. Yeah, I, I was gonna just follow up and, and ask if you think, um, in your opinion, if we should be doing research that is more theory driven or data driven? I like to do both. I like to do the, you know, start with the theory. And then often I actually like to just publish the theory even before I have a lot of evidence for it because then it will tell you like, oh, I'm gonna be now looking at this theory. So like I published a paper in 2009 talking about the anterior insular cortex in autism. And, um, and you know, years later, we've like 10 years later written a, a update on that. 
And now it turns out, I don't think the anterior insula is involved only in autism, but probably like is a good transdiagnostic marker across all different kinds of clinical condition. And that, so the theory got me going on a set of experimental, you know, studies and we've, you know, published empirical work on that theory over testing different hypotheses. And in fact, just, and I don't think a lot of the theories that I had in 2009 have panned out with respect to autism, but instead it's, it's like spurred a whole line of work in these other um, disorders, you know, ranging from anxiety to depression, to schizophrenia, to, you know, OCD. And I now, some of the papers I published in 2009 and 2010 have led to discoveries by other labs that I would never would have predicted. So it's like I put out some theory and then other labs tested in other domains and came up with other theories. Um, so, you know, theories can create new theories. And um, so, and then I like to sort of iterate back. So like, you know, 10 years later, write a review or a, a new synthesis or a new hypothesis based on what's happened in the past 10 years, and then make that the new starting point for new empirical studies. So I kind of like it to go back on itself, theory, and then empirical work and like a vicious cycle. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. <laughs> I, I'm sort of curious, uh, how did you, um, like, how did your interest in autism develop? My very, when I, this, this advisor I told you about, Ron Zaydel, asked me what I wanted to study, and he's one of those very open-minded and very generous people, and so I was young and enthusiastic, and I said, I want to study consciousness, and everybody wants to study consciousness when they're young and enthusiastic. It's a very hard problem to study, but there are a lot of societies that are you know, making a lot of progress there. So I said, I wanted to study consciousness. And um, so he was very, very supportive. And um, he basically said, well, let's start out with some paradigms that are related to that. So I was actually doing work on self-faced recognition and you know, how young kids learn to recognize themselves in the mirror when they're two and they start to develop a sense of self-awareness. And then you have like the chimpanzees can recognize themselves in mirrors and all of that kind of literature suggesting that they have some self-awareness. So I got interested in that whole thing. Um, and then I started thinking about autism because it's funny because autism actually, um, you know, it comes from the word for, you know, I think auto, which refers to self, um, and it's just one of those disorders where children are often more self-focused and kind of not as much interested in the outside world. So I started kind of looking into that just as a connection with my interest in, in self-awareness and self-recognition and consciousness. And so towards the end of my PhD, I started doing more work in autism um, in collaboration with Morella DiPreto at UCLA and got you know going down that path. But, um, you know, over the years that's evolved, like, you know, nothing stays the same. So then I started becoming more interested in the other aspects, not just the social interaction, but the executive function um, problems that you often see. And so then we got more into the role of flexibility in the brain systems that support flexible behaviors and how they're affected in autism. So I think I have a hard time focusing on any one thing <laughs> as, as the real story. <laughs> Yeah, uh, could you actually maybe tell us um, more about this cognitive and behavioral flexibility um, in relation to autism? Yeah, um, so when you look at the diagnostic criteria for autism, there's a lot of focus on the social and communication aspects of the disorder. It's mostly what people notice a lot of the time, but the other side of it is the restricted and repetitive behaviors that are also one of the diagnostic criteria. And within that, um, there's a lot of different things like insistence on sameness, you know, wanting things to be a particular way. Um, and in, in flexibility is, is sort of a part of that that I think has been less studied. Um, so, you know, some parents will say, well, they, 
they definitely want to only eat this food for breakfast or the kid only wants to wear yellow socks or um, so, something, you know, really about sticking to a routine. And it, I think that's pretty interesting because we all have these, you know, things where we're less flexible, things we prefer to be a certain way, but when it becomes, you know, keeps you from leaving the house, then it can be um, a struggle. So uh, I think this, you know, inflexibility or, you know, executive function impairment can be seen again, transdiagnostically and also in typical populations, but um, trying to understand really the brain systems that support flexible behaviors to, to me became one of the main focuses of our lab because I thought, um, well, at, on another, this ties back into methods. We actually had been doing a lot of work in the methods area of looking at brain dynamics. And it occurred to me just mechanistically that maybe like a dynamic brain is what is needed for flexible behaviors to be able to, like let's say you have a particular set of connections, but to be able to switch them on the fly, um, you know, in terms of what brain regions are talking to what other brain regions could perhaps be one way in which the brain implements flexibility at the behavioral level. So sometimes the, the methods and the theory come together and um, push you in new directions as well. I was wondering if you think there's any potential benefits that um, the autistic brain with this inflexibility actually offers. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. You um, often need to have a lot of focus uh, and not be distracted. So the opposite of flexibility is rigidity, but perhaps able, ability to sustain focused attention for a long time is the, you know, the good counterpart to, to that inflexibility. And sometimes, um, you know, we have uh, at the university, we have some adults with autism who who work um, you know, in, in different jobs across campus. And sometimes they really like doing things like making pastry at the bakery because it's really doing the same thing over and over again or you know some other kinds of jobs that um, you know some people might be bored by it but some adults with autism actually enjoy it because it requires a particular type of you know repeated behavior <laughs> so um, so there's always like a, you know not everything is necessarily a, a deficit um, there's a lot of benefits as well hmm that's really interesting um because because I'm autistic and actually a lot of my friends just coincidentally happen to also be that neurodivergent uh -huh. and we talk about why we're the way that we are all the mm -hmm. time and <laughs> one of the commonality that I think we share is that we sort of all like to do the same things mm -hmm. so for example like a friend of mine we also interviewed him um, he has Asperger's and he's mm -hmm. a very good data analyst mm -hmm. and we share that love for just coding even though it can be frustrating at times but mm -hmm. it's very comforting because you always know what's going to happen the computer doesn't lie so yeah you do it over and over and over. yeah um I don't know it, there's this like incremental progress that I think is very enjoyable so I don't know it's really weird I mean I don't know if there's any empirical basis to it but sometimes I feel like there's a set of jobs that are just more suitable for that's yeah bring that's a great um, uh, insight. So I was in a lab um, before I started my current lab. I was a postdoc at a group where they studied math um, processing in the brain. And they actually did a project on math abilities in kids with autism. And they found that, like you said, a lot of people with autism really do have really great math <laughs> abilities and, and the ability to you know, see patterns and things that, that uh, others might miss. And so they actually did a study back, I don't know when it was, 10 years ago now, where they found that parts of the brain that are really specialized for processing faces 
Um, those parts of the brain actually were the ones that the kids with autism were using to do math problems. So they were better at math than the typical kids and they were just arithmetic problems, but, but they also were using the same part of the brain that is often they were using during the math task. So, uh, so definitely there's, um, you know, we're, we all have our different specializations and in some cases it helps you to do better on particular tasks. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I was wondering if you think um, the autistic brain offers any sort of evolutionary advantage, because I know there's been a lot of uh, research on autism and a lot of it, um, in my opinion, has been a little bit problematic depicting it to be, you know, this like mental illness that is just mm -hmm. um, like evolutionarily unadaptive that we mm -hmm. want to eliminate, especially, you know, as the anti-vaxxers piggyback on that argument and using yeah. autism as a reason to not vaccinate your kids. Well, um, yeah. So yeah, I was just wondering if you think there's the other side of the story where maybe the autistic brain actually evolutionarily speaking did have an advantage at some point. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine, I mean, I'm not an evolutionary psychologist, but I can imagine a lot of scenarios where you need different skills and different, um, you know, different things to keep the tribe alive, right? So, you know, there's, there's if there's some people who, you know, are, are more focused and able to do a particular task that, that other people lose interest in, you know, that that could be an advantage for the for the group, right? So, um, yeah, it's, it's just point, just speculation, but, I, you know, different cognitive styles are necessary because, you know, not everyone is gonna do the same function in society. So um, you, you need to have people with both different sets of skills and different interests in order to um, you know, have cooperative group living like humans do. Um, this is all, yeah, it's <laughs> also so interesting. And actually one of my interests that I'm hoping to study in grad school is the schizophrenia spectrum disorders. And mm -hmm. I know that you mentioned that in your paper on the cognitive and behavioral flexibility review. And I was wondering if you could discuss more of how flexibility in people with um, schizophrenia or psychosis disorders may work uh, if you have any idea. I don't know if that's your specialty or if you know, but. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's definitely not my specialty. Um, I can refer you to some papers uh, in, in that. Um, but, but yeah, I think, um, you know, when you talk about these kind of trans diagnostic, um, you know, things, uh, I, I'm beginning to agree that like, it's important to look at everything on the spectrum. Like we all have some, flexible behaviors and other areas where we're not. And we all have some places where we're good at social communication and others where we're not. Um, and so, yeah, I think that inflexibility in schizophrenia, it, it also could be different from inflexibility in autism, right? It could manifest differently. Um, it could show up in different circumstances. So yeah, I'm definitely not an expert on that disorder, but I'm happy to refer you to some, some papers there. Um, so yeah, what I was trying to, to get at um, when thinking about the review of flexibility is that you can, you can see like you have inflexible motor behaviors in some late life dementias, right? And you could have inflexible thinking in some other cases. And in, you know, so it, it can really manifest in a lot of different ways. But it's, it's possible to imagine that a lot of the same brain circuits might be affected um, across these different conditions. So yeah, happy to refer you to some work that would be relevant. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, Katrina, I didn't, weren't you the one who told me that there's some like shared uh, commonality between um, autism and schizophrenia? Yeah, that's yeah. actually a paper mm -hmm. I wrote my first, my freshman year when I took a schizophrenia course uh, during undergrad and I wrote a paper that had some commonalities between those two. So I was wondering if you had yeah. ever heard about that 
Yeah, we have a couple of papers on that as well. And the the other thing is that with some collaborations, not just my group, but um, the uh, if I remember correctly, like the earlier versions of the diagnostic manuals, I think they lumped together schizophrenia and autism. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's another interesting historical note is that now we think, oh, of course, these are really distinct categories. Like how could you ever lump them together? But they, they did because much of psychiatry has just been based on behavioral observation, right? And clinical observation. And it's still that way. Like that's how the DSM diagnostic criteria are applied. You have an interview or you have an observation with a clinician. So that's why I think um, a lot of the biological marker development, the neuro, you know, um, well, trying to develop brain-based biomarkers, I think we're a far way off from that, but I think we can get some information from the biology that would help us, you know, distinguish, um, you know, one thing from another. But there's often comorbidity. That's another thing we study in the lab, which is like, for example, ADHD and autism often co-occur together um, and they might need a different kind of intervention if they have both sets of symptoms. So um, it's, psychiatry is messy. That's the one thing that, mm. <laughs> that has come from all of uh, my thinking about it. I know you mentioned the DSM right now, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts of like what you think the future of the DSM should look like or how to measure these transagnostic factors uh, in a better way. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of a lot of great minds thinking about this question because the DSM does get revised very often. And you, if you start looking between the different versions of it, you'll see a lot of changes from year to year and from version to version. And I think that's, that's partly because um, it's like um, Ikim was saying, we might not yet have the right theory of psychopathology that really encompasses everything cleanly. We might not have the right framework yet. And we're getting, hopefully we're getting closer and closer with every iteration, but um, at, you know, thinking about traits diagnostically rather than categorically, that is partly a paradigm shift. Uh, I think that, in, and RDOC mentions this too, integrating other markers, so biological markers, um, not just brain markers, but I know things that you can get from blood samples or genetic markers. Um, there's so many, uh, even lifestyle and sociocultural factors that affect whether or not schizophrenia comes on at a particular age. You could have all the genetic susceptibility, but never express um, the symptoms depending on your environment. So I think the more that DSM includes other variables, the better it will be going forward. And that's been, I think, a big challenge for, for uh, neuroscience, um, for psychiatry. Yeah. Um, I sort of have, um, at the risk of sounding sort of ignorant, because I really don't know much about this topic, but it's just this idea that sometimes I think about, um, you know, we're sort of like basing off of um, these so-called abnormalities of consciousness, like schizophrenia mm -hmm. or autism or ADHD or just neurodivergence in general, and mm -hmm. we're pegging whether those are abnormal or not based on this perceived commonality or what is supposed to be normal. And I was wondering if you think maybe right now we just don't know much about consciousness and that's why we keep pegging all of these conditions based on this perceived normality when in reality it's actually a very small subsection of human consciousness. So maybe like, you know, for example, decades from now or maybe hundreds of years mm -hmm. from now, I don't really know how the field is going to go. Maybe we will come to realize that it's actually a lot more dynamic than we previously ever thought. So what we now think of as neurodivergence or schizophrenia or psychopathy are actually just part of the healthy uh, dynamic of consciousness. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great point. And I think a lot of these sort of dimensional approaches are, are thinking along those lines too, which is um, you don't just have this cutoff. Um, the, the reason that people like cutoffs is for a practical reason. I think it's because you can say like, now I can refer you to this person, psychiatrist or clinical psychologist, or I can get you a service in the school for your kids so they can be in a special classroom, or I can get you this behavioral therapy or intervention. Or So the reason that people like diagnostic labels or clinicians like them is because it then gives them permission to do a particular thing they think would be useful for that as a patient, as a provider, um, or as a you know, teacher or an educator. So I think that that's more of like, how can we help this person, you know, maximize their success by um, giving them the label because then they can get insurance or something like that. So that's more of like a practical issue. Whereas, you know, thinking like, how can we change our, um, you know, thinking about uh, different disorders to not uh, pathologize them per se. So I think what's really interesting is the, the first case of autism, I'm going to forget all the historical details now, but I think it was a man who like lived in this town and, and everyone sort of knew him and his parents knew him and everyone kind of accepted him. And there was, there was not a lot of pathologizing about it because they just knew, oh, this guy behaves this way. And everyone was like happy to accommodate, you know, um, some like quirks. But I mean, if, if like, you know, we as society were like more accepting of the kinds of differences instead of just like, okay, you have to behave this way in these circumstances. Um, I think we're, we're like getting more to that point. I've seen a lot more like self-advocacy and a lot more, um, you know, groups on Twitter, for example, talking about like, you know, exactly what you're mentioning. And I think it's great that people are, you know, advocating for their own views and, and realizing that like, we don't all have to be this norm, right? Like there, what is the, what is the norm? What it's what some majority group decided, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. If there's something that you could change about um, your methodology, I mean, I, I'm just guessing because sometimes I feel like there are certain conventions that you have to follow. You know, for example, you have to use a certain skill to measure a certain thing because that's always been done in previous mm -hmm. literature, or at least like yeah. when I run a study, like that's generally how I would do it. I'm just mm -hmm. wondering if you've encountered like any similar situations in your research, like if there's anything that you could change about maybe autism research. Or, or just your research in general, in terms of methodology, what would it be? Yeah, I mean, one one thing I've noticed um, that is becoming more of a point of interest is that there's a lot of um, differences between cultures. Like, not everyone is using the same scales to diagnose autism. So most of the research has been done in you know the United States or the UK. So the, we don't actually know as much about autism in the other parts of the world. Um, but there's a, been some conferences lately where I've seen the research that's going on, for example, you know, in Africa or in India or in different parts of Asia. And it's like you said, like different cultures, um, you know, approach these things differently. Like I have, you know, relatives with different, you know, they would be diagnosed in different ways, but in my country of where I was born in Bangladesh, they're treated differently than they would be treated if they were here in the US. Um, and there's pros and cons to like each cultural approach. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think we're becoming more aware that there's there's more than one way of you know saying okay you have this scale and this person has this disorder and we're going to give them this treatment like that that's kind of really in a, in a way like Western biased because the the way we've been doing it or we've been taught but there's other parts of the world with other approaches and um, you know trying to understand and and support in terms of financially supporting a, a lot of studies across the world I think will help us 
um, move forward. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're always kind of limited by a couple of things like tradition, like you said, oh, everybody uses these skills. So we have to do it in order to be comparable with the past. But you know, we're also limited by uh, money and finances. So like to do this study, to fundraise, you have to get someone interested to support your, your work. So I've actually been impressed to see a lot more global and international collaboration on a lot of these efforts. There's, this is happening also on genetic studies of autism as well. So I think, um, I think yeah, basically like the theme from before is just working together across um, people with different expertise, different backgrounds. It's the best way to get the full picture. Yeah, I love that uh, bringing back to what you said in the past about um, working uh, within different departments. Uh, so being interdisciplinary with working with the engineering department, the mm -hmm. psychology, neuroscience, biology, all of those different departments, and also working on a global scale to make sure that what you're doing is culturally valid uh, mm -hmm. to everyone um, in a certain scenario, especially in the United States where everyone has very different ethnicities, backgrounds, religions. Um, mm -hmm. It's important to have those scales that can accurately depict what people are going through um, mm -hmm. without just basing it off of like one certain type of person. Yeah, I guess that's sort of Katrina's um, like research focus as well, because you're doing like cross-cultural. Oh. Uh, yeah, wanting to do more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. That's we want to make sure that more psychometric uh, assessments are cross-cultural for people uh, with schizophrenia and psychosis. Uh, yeah, that's well, that, that's really important to do, especially for schizophrenia. It's treated very differently in different cultures or conceptualized very differently. So that's one where you do definitely need that definitely. cultural sensitivity. <laughs> yes, definitely. And after reading a lot of biographies of people who've had experience like schizophrenia, a lot of it, the times they ended with just having an acceptance of it and not it right. being over pathologized. And that's really where the healing and the mm -hmm. acceptance came and you can definitely see like a change in their mindset when they're not just being forced into like a hospital where they don't yeah. understand what's going on and it's all just very confusing. So yeah, very well, that's a great topic for a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> uh, but those were all of my questions. Ikim, did you have anything else that you wanted to ask? Um, I could keep, keep talking about. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I, I know we only have like five minutes left, so I'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we wanna, you're respectful of your time. So uh, did you have anything that you wanted to say before we wrap up? Well, this is really exciting. Thanks for doing this. I'm glad to see um, people taking initiative to create new ways to, to talk about science. <laughs>